they had to have had no conspiracy. A conspiracy might lead in places they didn't want to go. That's the reason they had to steal the body. Welcome back to Plausible, a podcast where you, the jury, dive with us into the discovery of things having the appearance of truth or reason. Plausibility gives space not for what you already know, but for the outliers, conjectures, the unexplained history, the crazy sounding, hard to believe, but true. We are spending season one discussing the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Mr. Jens Hansen, who joined us for our last interview, and Mr. Gary Shaw, who co-wrote Conspiracy of Silence, and JFK has been shot with Mr. Hansen and Dr. Charles Crenshaw. Jens Hansen has a bachelor's degree in history and was a longtime friend of Dr. Charles Crenshaw. He is also a writer and was the one who brought the idea to Dr. Crenshaw to finally write down his testimony of all the things he experienced regarding President Kennedy's assassination. Gary Shaw is a retired architect who has been researching the JFK assassination for decades. He is the co-founder of the JFK Assassination Information Center in Dallas and former director of the Assassination Archives and Research Center in Washington, D.C., Mr. Shaw is one of the leading experts on the assassination and has done an incredible amount of research. It is a privilege to have them both on the podcast today, so join us as we rethink what is or isn't plausible. Mr. Hanson and Mr. Shaw, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. You're welcome. Pleasure to be with you. One of the things that occurred to me after I released this podcast um, because I wanted to release it on November 22nd and worked hard to get it out this year is that I realized uh, that I'm I'm 35 years old. So I released it on my 35th year and JFK was the 35th president. So it's just a cool coincidence that makes it more memorable for me. Um, and also, if I hadn't released it now, I probably wouldn't be able to get connected to you two, which I'm very thankful for. Um, so with that being said, I wanted to ask both of you where you were when the assassination of President Kennedy occurred in 1963. Go ahead, Jens. No, you go first, Gary. <laughs> well, it's real simple with me. I had gone home from work. I lived about 60 miles from Dallas and uh, for lunch. And I, my wife always watched uh, As the World Turns. And I was eating a sandwich watching As the World Turns when Walter Cronkite came on and announced the shooting. And uh, the rest is, of course, is history. I was in uh, in high school uh, when Kennedy was shot, and uh, I was between two classes and uh, heard that uh, Kennedy had been shot and had actually expired. So that's, that's where I was when when the president was shot. Right. Wow, it must have been such a surreal day, I would imagine. Well, Kennedy was not very popular in West Texas. And there wasn't a lot of uh, sadness uh, among the ultra-conservatives of the state uh, because he was Catholic and they were concerned about the president becoming a king. Mr. Shaw, I remember in your biography that I read that you said that you had started researching the Kennedy assassination the day assassination the day after um, that it occurred. And could you share with our listeners the interesting connection that you have to Jack Ruby in regards to the assassination? Yes, I'll uh, I'll try to make it short and sweet, but. Uh... <laughs> In my final years in high school, uh, final year actually, we were had a singing group, a doo-wop group, four of us, who were singing back up to a, a rockabilly singer by the name of Johnny Carroll in this area. And uh, in nineteen, in late nineteen fifty-six or early nineteen fifty-seven, we actually were in the Texas theater singing back up for him on stage 
And uh, after our performance, we went back to the dressing room, and who should appear but Jack Ruby. And, oh, my. Uh, became acquainted then. Uh, and uh, never never personally, but had several contacts with him over the next few years prior to the assassination. I'd been in his club a number of times, and uh, he'd actually sat at my table at one time. Jen, you may not know many of much of this, but this is all fact. And uh, when Jack Ruby shot Roswell, I thought something was terribly wrong because I had heard the scuttlebutt while I was in Dallas that, that Jack Ruby was actually mafia and that we should uh, watch him real close and that sort of thing. So I thought at that time that Oswald had been silenced by uh, criminals and that there was a conspiracy. So I began immediately to uh, accumulate all the knowledge I could on what happened that day. I think the fact that you met him in person is just an incredible, an incredible part of your connection to the to the whole story. Well, it was providential, I guess, or coincidental, or whatever you want to call it. It uh, it certainly affected my life from that time to now. I might mention real quickly at this time that at the time Oswald was shot by Ruby, I thought that it was an attempt to silence him. Over the years, I've learned that it was not an attempt to silence the man. It was the, it was the attempt to prevent him from going to trial because the evidence against him in the assassination is uh, non-existent, so to speak. I, I think that makes a lot of sense because Oswald, you know, he was obviously set up to be a fall person for the assassination in whatever, you know, in whatever sense that was for them. But if, if they had, if they had caught him and he had stood trial, then I don't know what, I mean, it would have been a mess as far as the CIA and his connections and right. I mean, all kinds of things would would, probably come out. It would be very damaging to their story, so to speak. He he would have been, in fact, I think, I think uh, most of the evidence, if not all of it, would be thrown out of court before it was even presented. And therefore, he would be acquitted, and, and therefore, they'd have to go look <laughs> in other exactly. places for assassin or assassins. And and Jack Ruby had ties with the Dallas Police Department, so it also made him an easy person, it seemed, to set up in that situation because he had so many friendships with them that it probably wasn't super strange for them to see him to see him there no he was a good old boy that's right (laughs) i looked at uh the project jfk csi dallas which is where um you donated a lot of or most of your documents that you've been collecting is that right mr shaw no that's a very minute part of what i've collected over the years uh wow I have just been trying to put on lines so others can can have it. Uh, photographs that I collected early on uh, in this whole thing. I, I presently have probably uh, oh, 15 or 16 legal size file drawers full of of files, photographs, documents, interviews that I personally conducted over the years with various participants in the not in the assassination necessarily, but were witnesses or new things that uh, that pertain to the assassination. So I've accumulated quite a file. I've got a number of uh, documents from from the government. I filed approximately 30 uh, freedom of information lawsuits against uh, various uh, agencies, the FBI, CIA, and so forth. And so... I've been quite active in this, as you can you can tell. Wow, that's amazing! I didn't even that I didn't that didn't even occur to me that you could do that. What a good idea! We tried. <laughs> we were not <clears throat> successful, but we sure tried. Yes, but it's such a valiant effort because with all the things that you've researched, I can't imagine the things that you probably have in your hands to be able to try to defend those 
you know, those filings with them to say, this, this was not good how this was handled. This is, there's so many flaws. It was terrible the way it was handled. Well, what I'm on, let me, let me quickly, if you don't mind, recommend a a book. Oh, please. uh, Mm -hmm. had just come out that uh, I did some of the research for, and, and uh, it's called Coup in Dallas. That's C-O-U-P-I-N Dallas, like coup d'etat. And it's called okay. The Decisive Investigation into Who Killed JFK. It's by an author named H.P. Alborelli, Jr., and uh, it's about 800 or so pages, uh, but it uh, it gives a lot of the uh, names and faces of people who were uh, probably involved in all of this. And uh, it's a it's a difficult read, but if anybody is listening who wants to uh, see exactly where this thing appears to lead. Uh, this is probably the most recent book on that subject. So I'll just give you the blurb that's on the back cover that I did for the book. And uh, this will give you some idea. I call it an impressive and staggering piece of investigative journalism based upon the jotted down notations found in the 1963 date book of an amoral clandestine government henchman we now know the identities of some of the planners and perpetrators of the crime of the century. So I think you'll find it enlightening, and your listener may also. Wow. Uh, well, I will definitely be buying that book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Gosh, that sounds fantastic. And also for our listeners, you can visit um, projectjfk.com. That's where a lot of these photographs that Mr. Shaw was referring to um, that he gave to the JFK CSI project is is online there, so you can see them. Um, for you, Mr. Shaw, with all of these uh, interviews you've done over the years, the stuff that you've put in this book, what are some of the things that enlightened you most or surprised you the most in the things that you've collected and researched? Well, probably the most exciting i i would say and not not so much surprising is that another one of those providential encounters or coincidental encounters was that i uh, ran into a lady who was taking a movie moving picture of the assassination from the opposite side of the street from abraham's Zapruder. Most people know oh, yes. that Abraham Zapruder was at the right front of the presidential limousine as, it, as the assassination occurred. If you look at his film, you'll see a lady in an overcoat uh, with a scarf on across the street also taking a movie. And uh, no one had ever found her. Well, we stumbled into each other. And she told me you what... You are uh, kidding me. No, I'm not. <laughs> and she wow. told me the whole, whole story. And most people, this has been a buried story. I gave it to the investigators for the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and they did nothing with it, among other things that I gave them. But but this was particularly intriguing. This This young lady was not quite 18 years old at the time, but she was mm. a performer, a singer. And she had been hired with her parents' permission to sing uh, at the Colony Club, which was right next door to Jack Ruby's Carousel Club there in Dallas. And uh, one evening, you know, she was at the club, and she was actually going went, uh, uh, next door to visit with the girls who were performing. These were strippers, of course who were performing right, next right. door to the Colony Club. She knew all of them. And uh, she was introduced by Jack Ruby to Lee Oswald of the CIA. Oh, well, my. That was, a, that was a staggering piece. But the main thing is is that she went down into Dealey Plaza because that was the only place she could get a clear shot of the of the limousine because of the crowd. 
and she was taking the movie the the movie as the president turned onto Elm Street and came down the incline on Elm Street into Dealey Plaza. Filmed the whole thing. And uh, she went back, and they didn't open up over the weekend, so she didn't show up until, until Monday. And as she got there Monday uh, after the assassination and after Oswald was, was shot, two men approached her, men in suits, and mm-hmm. identified themselves as some government agent. She's conflicted this about whether it was FBI, CIA, Secret Service, or whatever. Uh, scared her to death, of course, and they said they understood she took a film of the assassination. She said that she did and that uh, she had not yet developed it. And they said, well, if you'll let us have it, uh, we'll develop it bring your original back to you, and we'll have this as part of our investigation. That's the last she ever heard of her film. Oh, it man. disappeared. And has not been seen to this day. Yeah. One of the great mysteries. Man, and can you imagine what insight we would have if we had that film from that side of the plaza? That would yeah, be think- incredibly helpful. Well, it would show the sixth floor window. It would show all of the people on the uh, so-called grassy knoll. It would show activities that probably they do not want to be exposed. And uh, it would be a very damaging to their lone gunman, uh, single bullet theory assassination. It sure would. <laughs> it sure would. And that's a good um, segue into one of the overlapping commonalities that I've observed from from both of you just in, in reading uh, the books and, and talking with you and watching the research or the interviews that you've done um, is both of your suspicion of the Secret Service, the men in suits, like you mentioned. Um, so, Mr. Hansen, I was going to ask you what failures or roles do you think that the Secret Service, these men in played in the assassination well as I mentioned in our in our other uh, podcast they they ushered the president's body out of Parkland uh, and uh, and failed to allow dr. Rose to conduct an autopsy as mm-hmm. we stated uh, it was Texas law to conduct an autopsy on a homicide and they made sure that no one touched Kennedy's body. No one took any evidence from it. No one analyzed it. And uh, so it, if you want to know a failure, it, they were they were part of the coup, as Gary said. Uh, that That's the big, biggest problem with them. They were part of the, the group that, that refused to allow the American people to know what happened to their president. I, w- I could see that. It seems that they they just stepped in at very convenient times to prohibit the necessary things to take place that otherwise would have. That's correct. And and I want to say that that when when Chuck and I decided to, to initially started this project, uh, I told him that there's only one person I know who knows enough to join us on this, and it's Gary Shaw. There is no one on the face of the earth that knows more about the Kennedy assassination than Gary Shaw. And uh, and when you read the book, you'll find out why Chuck and I wanted him to write at least half of it. So uh, I think that should be said so people will know that he is the foremost expert. Thank you, Jen. But that's probably a debatable subject. Uh, what do I think about the Secret Service? Uh, yes, sir. Is that uh, basically what they did? Is they absconded with with the, the the primary evidence in a in a homicide, which is the body, and they mm-hmm. took it by force illegally out of the state of Texas and out of Texas authorities' hands and took it to the military hospital in Washington, Bethesda, Maryland, actually, just outside of Washington, and performed a butcher 
<laughs> butchery job on the president by, yes. by men who have never done a forensic patho- uh, pathologist report or autopsy uh, before in their lives, uh, not not for a uh, gunshot victim. And they mm-hmm. so distorted the evidence that it's uh, uh, well, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be uh, advisable to try to put that in front of a jury and convict Lee Oswald. Right. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Hume burned his autopsy notes. Is that correct? That's correct. Put them in his fireplace, he said, because they had blood on them. Well, the autopsy um, face sheet did it did uh, continue to exist and is in the National Archives right now. It also has blood on it, but he didn't uh, he didn't destroy it. It uh, it's an amazing thing. He wrote he rewrote the uh, his autopsy notes. Oh my goodness! I mean, I'm sure that he. It would be hard to forget some of the things that you saw, but that seems pretty convenient because I cannot imagine any doctor burning anything that's regarding someone as important as the president of the United States. You don't. If you're if you are ordered if you're ordered to do it by your employer, who also pays you in your retirement, you'll probably do it. Mm. The one thing you learn in the military is you take orders. Mm. And they were ordered. The photographs of, that we have of the autopsy, of the president at autopsy, do not look anything like what Chuck, Dr. Crenshaw, and the other the doctors at Parkland Hospital saw that day. They were completely altered in some manner between. Dallas and Bethesda Hospital, and uh, they uh, they apparently were changed, altered in such a fashion that they could write a report that would convince people, which it didn't, that only one shooter fired and all the shots were from behind, when actually the Parkland doctors all said that they came from the front. You can't have Oswald unless he's, he's good at banking a shot off the triple underpass, uh, you can't have a shot from the front, from the Oswald window. Exactly. That's right. And they they had to have that narrative continue sort of for the same reason that you're talking about with Oswald, that if there was any other shooter besides him or if it came from another direction, then they can't pin it all on him. I mean, is that kind of the main drive, do you think, behind all of this? Yeah, that's the main thrust of it, is that they have to, have, they had to have had no conspiracy. A conspiracy mm. might lead in places they didn't want to go. Mm. Yeah, because it just seems like such a lot of work to fight that battle at the hospital, having the Secret Service be aggressive towards Dr. Rose, so that they can take his body, do the autopsy, you know, make his body look. A certain way so that it fits the mold of the story. Get a photographer to take those photos that are the ones that you had that you had shown Dr. Crenshaw. And so I think you know people would ask why, like why did they go to that great length? You know, but it I mean that's all part of the cover up is if they didn't do all those things, then things would not add up and they would not have the narrative that they've been telling and that the Warren Commission printed. Is that right? That's right. They That's the reason they had to steal the body. Mm-hmm. It was the primary evidence in a homicide and, and uh, they stole it, altered the wounds and uh, the rest, of course, is history. Right. We, we, we should remind everyone that when they took that body out of Parkland Hospital, the president had a hole in the back of his head about the size of a little larger than a golf ball where that bullet exited and blew his brains all over the back of the car and onto the street. And every doctor in that room saw that hole in the back of his head. 
and many mm-hmm. of them agreed that it was there with Dr. Crenshaw. That's what they were trying to hide. Don't you agree, Gary? Exactly. It uh, it blew out the back of his head with such force that the motorcycle patrolman, was a, which was an old Cleveland boy, it was riding on the left rear, uh, was hit with such force he, he thought himself that he himself had been uh, struck by a bullet. And you're right, Mr. Hanson, when um, when the shot came, I think when I've, I've watched the Zapruder film countless times, <laughs> and I feel like it's just common sense, even when you watch it, that the, the way Kennedy's body reacts to the shot just in common sense looks like it came from the front. So I don't know at what point they had to decide we have to keep this, you know, a narrative that it only came from the sixth floor. Or if I, do you think they already, they already went into the assassination with that plan? Like, this is our guy. It has to be from the sixth floor, no matter what happens to anybody else, no matter what happens to motorcycle rider or to um, the young man, James Tag that was, you know, hit by the um, fragments on the street. You've heard that saying, that's our story and we're sticking with it. Right. That's that's what they did with this story about Oswald. And they were going to do whatever was necessary to perpetuate that story, even all the way to the halls of Congress. Uh, they were not going to change it because the minute they changed it, the minute they let any evidence in that showed a shot from the front, I told you, this all comes unraveled, and you don't know where it would end up. So mm-hmm. uh, I think Gary would probably agree that that was their story. They were going to stick with it no matter what they had to do. This is in my opinion, and and uh, I think that the plan was to kill Oswald before he got out of the Texas School Book Depository. They didn't do that. And oh, interesting. Therefore, it opened up. It opened the door up to all of this other stuff that took place. Had they have killed him in the school book depository, we got the little commie nut, and he's dead. Case closed. But it didn't happen that way. Oh, that's so interesting. That would make a lot of sense. Then it wouldn't have even been an issue if they, you know, as far as the public's knowledge of anything. That's right. Do you think that... A question I get asked a lot um, in regard to the conspiracy is, did Oswald actually shoot? Um, and and I go back and forth on that. What do you what do you gentlemen think? Did he was he just up there and was you know completely a patsy in the sense that he didn't even fire from up there? It was a total setup, or do you think he it was a both and situation? A lot of people have not heard this quote, but the chief of police at the time was a man by the name of Jesse Curry, and he just said out loud, uh, we could never put Oswald in that window with that gun. They did not have evidence that would show that Oswald was in the sixth floor or the sixth floor window or had the rifle or anything pertaining to the assassination. Uh, they would have been in deep, deep trouble trying to prove that fact. Exactly. Right, because from what I understand, there was no paraffin wax on his face from what would have been there if he had shot a rifle. And the fingerprints that they found allegedly on the rifle were precarious at best. They weren't, you know, they were very impartial prints. The FBI did test fire the Oswald rifle, and it did leave powder on his on the shooter's cheek, and the paraffin test found nothing on Oswald's cheek, period. So he did not fire that rifle. <laughs> exactly. Or he had a and rifle then, that right, that he didn't have any evidence of that on his person, and then 
um, all they have really to place Oswald up there after that is hearsay. And they could ask anybody to testify to that, to say, oh, sure, we saw him up there. Well, they had the very suspicious magic bullet <laughs> that they said <laughs> connected to the Oswald rifle. But uh, that's that's another story. <laughs> yes, that is. Well, let me, let's go to the Warren Commission. I did want to talk about that because obviously that's what came out of their, you know, their story was this magic bullet. And one of, that's one of the things I spent a fair amount of time talking about in my podcast is just the failures of the Warren Commission and just, they went to this, you know, they have this 888 page book that no one's going to take the time to fully read, you know, I mean, I, I would like to, I know people have, but you know, the general public aren't going to go through all of that. So I think they just went to this just exaggerated level to try to keep their narrative going. Um, what do you think about, about the commission? I think what I'd love to hear your thoughts on are, are the individual members and just, I noticed a lot of them had very favorable opportunities after they served on the commission. Um, a lot of them were willing to, like we've talked about, just follow orders and have that narrative continue. Uh, what are your thoughts about them, Mr. Shaw? Well, one thing is there was not a friend of Jack Kennedy on on the Warren Commission and especially not the man who had the most to do with the Warren Commission, which was not Mr. Warren. It was Mr. Alan Dulles. He was former right. director of the CIA and, and was fired by Kennedy after the uh, the fateful uh, ill-advised Bay of Pigs invasion on Cuba in 61. And uh, so he pretty well directed where the investigation went. There were two Southern... Uh, members of Congress who uh, who took exception to the magic bullet or the single bullet theory that they tried to sell to the American people. And uh, mm -hmm. that was Hale Boggs from Louisiana. And uh, oh, Senator Russell, I believe, was from Georgia. Uh, mm -hmm. from that and, and neither of them would, would sign off on that, that conclusion. So, uh, you know, they had little to do. Most of the Warren Commission stuff was done by their underlings, attorneys and, and investigators that they hired to do that. One of the primary ones was Arlen Specter, who later became a senator, but at that time was was simply an attorney. And uh, he's, he's the one that came up with the uh, single bullet theory that uh, people are still arguing about over the years. Not much of an argument now because they realized that it was a lie. At the time, it's kind of shocking that it would have been accepted as a plausible theory, the magic bullet theory. But I guess because they they had that one bullet, that was why they spent all that energy and, and the public kind of followed it. But the public didn't really have anything else to go off of until the Zapruder film was released almost, you know, 12 years later. All we had is what the government told us, and uh, the uh, the Warren report was, like you say, 888 pages in one volume, but there were 26 volumes of supposedly supporting evidence to that report. Plus, there right. were millions of documents uh, that uh, never have seen the light of day at that time, mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. so. Uh, what we got was what the government wanted us to hear, and, and uh, that was what was in the report. Uh, there was a, a new newspaper editor living just outside of Dallas who wrote a lot about the Kennedy assassination, and he said the only thing they forgot to uh, forgot to uh, tell us in the Warren report, they forgot to underline where they lied to us once you got the 26 <laughs> volumes, because the 26 oh. volumes actually in themselves destroyed the report. Isn't that fascinating? And because those are all the testimonies, right? Of people. That's testimonies and documents and and uh, exhibits and so forth, yes. 
Mm-hmm. Wow. That's fascinating that in, within those things, they kind of shot themselves in the foot with their own report. Right. Wow. How do you think later in the 70s when they when they put the House Select Committee on Assassinations together, at that point, now the public has seen the Zapruder film and there's been a lot of, you know, concern about the government lying and all of those things. Um, so, and I, from what I understand that the House Select Committee was able to, you know, talk a little bit more with some of the agencies that weren't as forth, forthright in the, in the beginning with the Warren Commission. But it seems like they still kind of agreed a lot with the, I know they agreed with the magic bullet theory, which if you agree with that seems like you're still kind of falling short. What what did you think of the House Select Committee's their findings versus the Warren Commission and and how all that played out? Probably a lot of people don't know this, but the House Select Committee originally started out and the 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 director of the committee was a guy by the name of uh all Sprague, Richard Sprague, and he uh, he planned to investigate it like a murder case. And he got he hired some investigators that were homicide investigators, and uh, he was approaching it that from that direction. They got so disturbed about that that they fired him and hired a new director who took it in a totally different direction. He uh, and therefore, the investigation was not an investigation. It was simply mm-hmm. a another cover-up, basically, because they uh, they checkmarked the uh, the Warren Commission on the single bullet theory, which is, you know, very damning to the people who uh, who ended up doing the House Select Committee. They they did that committee. They the main thing that promoted that was was the showing finally of the Zapruder film. It had been confiscated by Life magazine and, and hidden, never shown to the American people until 1975 when an illicit copy was shown on national television. And right. uh, as, the old, as the old saying goes, it really blew their dress up. And they had <laughs> to start looking at it. The American people were saying, hey, we need to know more about this. And uh, mm-hmm. so... They uh, they started looking at that. The violent head movement of the president after the shot hit him is backwards and to the left with uh, tremendous force, the force that yep. you would expect to get from a, a bullet to, to a skull. And uh, that uh, disturbed the American people. They had, to, they had to whitewash it again, and that's what the House Select Committee ended up doing. So they said that... Uh, <laughs> If there was a shot from the grassy knoll, probably a pistol that missed, and, uh, and there you go from there, you know. Mm-hmm. That bullet's probably still floating around in space now. It didn't hit anything. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I know. It's just, it's kind of unbelievable, really. It's frustrating. Wow. <laughs> it is. It is. I totally agree. I totally agree. And that I think that makes sense what you just shared a lot about the house select. I did not know that about I knew that there that Richard Sprague had been involved, but I didn't realize the shift that happened when he got fired and then they brought somebody else in. But that's a huge shift and I think it just is another, you know, tick in the in the to check off to support for conspiracy and this cover-up situation that you can't even keep the same guy in such a important position and let him research it that way because they were clearly scared to find out what would come of it if he approached it that way. Well, the the new director, Blakey, said that he mm-hmm. was certainly glad that he didn't have to pursue a killer. Now, that sounds like a real investigation to me. Wow, gosh. <laughs> he he made a big show uh, right after he took over. He had about a dozen of us critics and researchers and writers fly to uh, to Washington and 
sit around a conference table and for a couple of three days discuss what we had to offer, and uh, then they did nothing with it. Disappointing is mild word. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know, but I'm so thankful that that you jumped on that research train so quickly because I think you're probably one of the few people in the world that have that like have had access to these things because you you started researching so quickly that you're able to meet these people like the woman that had the videotape um from the grass or from the Dealey Plaza and all these different things I mean it's incredible what you found Mr. Shaw and I think that says a lot that they would bring you in even if they didn't use you know the things that you had researched the fact that you are a person that was brought into that seat there's a lot about all the work that you've done. Well, there's been a lot of great researchers and writers uh, in this whole thing, and I've I've gleaned a lot of what I of my knowledge from from reading after them, and uh, so you could uh, you could you know you could build a real good case if you got us all together. <laughs> exactly. Mr. Shaw, one of one of the things I didn't get to really talk about in my podcast that I would love for you to share uh for the listeners in you know uh the in the conspiracy and the assassination, one of the things for me that has always kind of nagged at me and supported the idea of conspiracy is that there's so many people that were f- killed or you know, mysteriously died. There's all these things that had happened. I mean, it's countless over 10, 20 years or directly around the time of the assassination. But one of the people I didn't get to talk about in my podcast is Rose Sheremy. Um, Could you share a little bit with our listeners about who she was and why she's significant to the assassination? I'll try to, but that's a, that's a long convoluted story. And, uh, I'll make it as brief as I possibly can. I I met and and worked with her son, starting back in the probably the late seventies or early eighties. No, maybe late eighties. And uh, he oh, actually wow. has written a book. Uh, I don't know whether you're familiar with the book uh, that uh, I, I he wrote about his mother and all that. I would recommend it to your to your listener. It's called Very good. Uh, I did not know about that. Yeah. His name is Michael, Dr. Michael Marcades, M A R C A D E S. And he wrote uh, Fallen Petals. He titled it that, which is the story of Rose Sheremy. Rose Sheremy's mm. real name was Melba uh excuse me. My mind went blank for a minute. <laughs> oh no uh, worries. Young Melba Melba Youngblood. And uh she married a man by the name of Marcades and had the child Michael. And uh he's done really well in, in his life. His his aunt and his uncle and his grandparents actually raised him. He saw his mother maybe four times that he could remember. But when he decided to write about her She's a woman that had prior knowledge of the assassination, and they tried to uh, to bury her <laughs> and uh, yep. and not let her evidence come out. She was thrown out of a of a car in uh, southern Louisiana uh, shortly before the assassination, the day before the assassination, and she told the people who were at the hospital that. It was on television that the president was going to Dallas, and she said that the president was going to be killed when he went to Dallas, and that the two men who threw her out of the car—that's what they were going for. They were going headed to Dallas to uh, to kill the president, and uh, you know she said all that, and then they shut her up real quick. Uh, she had a terrible history. Her life was a a, a mess, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but anyway, she told this and it was reported. One of the officers that interviewed her called the Dallas police after Oswald was arrested and told them the story. And they said, forget it. We've got our man. So yeah, that's how, how much of an investigation went on. Probably within a, she went quiet, uh, 
for until 1965, and they found her beside the road up in uh, East Texas, where she had been run over supposedly by a car. But one of the things that her uh, medical records, they said dead on arrival. Well, she lived eight hours, according to her medical records, which we went over in in uh, East Texas and got from the hospital. Showed wow. a punctate stellate wound to the to the forehead, which punctate stellate wound is a is like a bullet shot. It's when you hold the bullet, uh, hold the gun next to the skin of a skull, and when when you fire it, it blows the skin out uh, in a star shape or a stellate shape, and it's obvious that that's what happened to her, that that, that she was murdered in 1965, uh, and uh, of course she can't tell her whole story, but she has a, it, it's a great story if you if you'll buy the book. It's a small you know, paperback book, and uh, it tells her whole story. I wrote the, the uh, introduction to it, and uh, uh, I got well acquainted with some of the Jack Ruby's girls over the years, and in a good way. <laughs> let me let me say that real quick. In, in other words, I was able to communicate with them and uh, know a lot about Jack Ruby. He's been one of my guys that I've really kind of honed in on over the years. Right. What What are some of the things that, that you can share with our listeners about about him? I, I talk a little bit about him in the podcast, just about his history in Chicago and some of his upbringing and just that he had clear ties with the mafia. Um, but what are some of the things that you've that you found as you've honed in on him? Well, he was he was a gun runner <laughs> uh, to Cuba. He actually, at one time, went on a uh, top-secret airplane ride <laughs> with Texas Instruments out of Dallas, who was developing a terrain-following radar system for planes. Uh, how he got top-secret top clearance to, to make that flight, I'll never know, but he did it twice. And uh, his story is just so amazing. They said he was not connected to organized crime in any way. The House Select Committee did have to admit that he was very heavily connected to organized crime. I found right. out that there was a meeting of men from two different sources, that there was a meeting at his club uh, 11 days before the assassination, uh, men from New Orleans and from Chicago and men unknown. <laughs> so there's a lot to his story that I'm still working on. But the main thing I'd want to hone in on, and I know we're getting close to the end of the hour, and Jen's probably feels neglected, and I'm sorry, Jen. Uh, but I want to. I want to. No, Gary. I, I I I thought the hour belonged to you. I I think we well, we covered the medical evidence real well the last time, and I was looking forward to her talking to you about all the things you know so i've been interested to listen to you well thank you i uh, i want to stress how important and what an american hero charles crenshaw is was mm -hmm. and is and will continue to be because of him telling his story like he told it and uh uh i think he was crucified for telling the truth uh by very powerful entity in this country and yeah. uh, I think it eventually killed him because even friendly fire got him even some of his friends who were medical professionals involved in that turned against him in that and lied absolutely lied about what they saw and what they had written previously on the day of the assassination they wrote reports that agreed with Dr. Crenshaw and then they lied when uh, when they came after publicly came after Charles Crenshaw to destroy the book. I don't know whether Jed wow. covered that with you or not, but the book, for for a couple of reasons, went immediately to uh, the top of the list on on uh, paperback books. I mean, the New right. York Times bestseller. And uh, when they 
saw that, they came out at him with such a vengeance that uh, the the book, of course, dropped off the off the scales at, at that time. But Dr. Crenshaw stood strong all through it, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, I admire him greatly, and and I'm thankful that he came forward. His story will live on forever. Absolutely. I can I can add I can add to 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 what Gary just said when uh, as Chuck and I went through all the medical evidence at his kitchen table night after night after night month after month he kept saying you have no idea what's coming at us when this comes out and he kept saying that and he believed it and he knew the people who were going to do it and uh, he was right he was crucified for being uh, a truthful uh, attendee to to history. And uh, he is a hero, and he was the first person who was in the room who told the truth about the president's wounds and the medical evidence and what it showed. So he is a hero, and I'll I'll always respect Dr. Crenshaw. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for giving time today. This has just been fascinating. I'm so excited for my listeners to just keep continue to hear. And um, we'll be checking out these books that you mentioned, Mr. Shaw, and we'll be looking out for your book on Jack Ruby or anything that you come out with in the future. <laughs> okay. Thank you for having us on. I appreciate it. And and my very best to you. Thank you. You yeah, too. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you, Mr. Hansen. Appreciate you connecting us. For those of you interested in reading these excellent books by Mr. Hansen and Mr. Shaw, the print edition of JFK Has Been Shot is out of stock currently. Amazon is offering some used copies through their third-party vendors, and I got my copy on the Thrift Books app. The ebook can be purchased on Amazon, Nook, Kobo, iBooks, and other ebook platforms. The audiobook is also available on all vendor sites. We would love to see an uptick in demand for these books so they can go back to print. As Mr. Shaw mentioned, Dr. Crenshaw was incredibly courageous to write this book, and I want to show his family and Mr. Shaw and Mr. Hansen all the support I can for getting this important work into the world. The other works that were mentioned, if you would like to purchase them, are Coup in Dallas by H.P. Alborelli Jr. and Rose Cheremy, Gathering Fallen Petals by Michael Marcades. 